Awesome. That's just a little bit of family business. So turn with me to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. I want to dive into God here and I want to lead us into a new, a new season. Today the Lord has a new thing for us, uh, just kind of a new phase of what God is doing in our church. It's not necessarily your traditional Mother's Day message, but I, I guarantee it's going to rock your socks off. So, uh, those of you who have socks on. But uh, we're, this is, what is it, 90 degrees out there? Most people probably don't even have socks on today. So, um, but, uh, so what, the Lord, um, what the Lord has put on my heart in this next season, the Lord is leading us into a kingdom perspective. I mentioned to you, those of you, most of you know this, in January, I mentioned to you that the Lord was going to lead us into a season where He was going to teach us how to make disciples. The Lord wants us, He wants His church, to reproduce ourselves in the lives of others, to give what we've received from the Lord away to others. Many of you know that we like to say around here, freely you have received, freely give. It's what Jesus said defines a disciple in Matthew chapter 10. Somebody who is like Jesus, one who's being discipled by Jesus, Matthew 10.8, says, what you have freely received, freely give. At this church, we love receiving. We love receiving His love and His blessings and all His promises. The reality is, if it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd have nothing, right? It's all by His grace. Our salvation is by His grace. And so unapologetically, we receive what God has given to us. And we would never leave that foundation as a church. We're going to continue to just stay rooted like a tree in soil. Stay rooted in God's love and in the, and in the things that God wants to do in our lives. But the Bible says, Jesus said, what you have received, give. And that's where the Lord is leading us. That this season, the emphasis is going to be on giving away what we've received. Because if we don't give what we've received, we shut uh, we short-circuit the process, don't we? We cut it short. We were created to be conduits of His glory to the world. Amen? Just like He said to Abraham, I will bless you and make you a blessing. That blessing that the Lord gives to us has always been meant to flow through us. And the Lord wants to lead us as a church into a place of reproducing ourselves in the lives of others. And we'll get there in, in a number of uh, weeks or whatever, we'll get there. We'll talk specifically how to do that, how to reproduce ourselves. But first, the Lord wants to shift something in our hearts. The Lord is wanting to give us a kingdom perspective on our world and our life. He's wanting to give us an eternal perspective. I keep hearing the Lord say shift. He wants to shift something inside of our hearts from self-centered to Christ-centered. It's not to say that uh, we're utterly selfish and uh, uh, sinful people. No, many of us here, most of us here have given our lives to follow Jesus. But there are areas in our lives that we've compartmentalized, that we have not given to the Lord. There are ways that we think, worldly ways that we think, that are not according to His truth. And so we're going to start a series called A God's Eye View. God wants us to see our world, our life, from His perspective, His kingdom perspective, His eternal perspective. And I guarantee in this next number of weeks, the Lord will lift you up. The Lord, hope will rise. As the light of God's Word shines on us, 
the Lord Jesus is going to do some powerful things in our hearts. Hope is going to rise in our hearts in a greater way. But I also say to you, kind of warn you, buckle your seatbelts, self will die. The Lord wants to do a deep refining in our church and confront things that are self. He wants to shift us from self-centered to Christ-centered. It's really a very exciting thing that the Lord is going to be doing. And so uh, today we're just beginning that journey, and I want to introduce some of the things uh, that the Lord's saying. And so in Matthew 16, I'm going to dive into the Word. In fact, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew a lot. For the, mostly, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew as we look at the truths of God's kingdom and what it means to be a follower of Jesus and, uh, and what it means to make disciples. And so let's, let's actually let's pray before we get into Matthew 16. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are going to speak through me. I thank you that you're leading us into a new season. Powerful things that you want to deposit inside of us. Lord, I ask you that every heart would be open. I ask that you would give my friends, your people, ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that understands. So, Lord, we do do that right now. We open our hearts to you. Just tell the Lord that in your own words. Just say, Lord, I open my heart. Speak to me. Lead me. Lord, I thank you that this is something you're going to do in us by your grace. So we receive that grace. Just tell the Lord, I receive your grace. Lead me into what you want to do in us and through us, Lord. Amen. All right. Matthew 16 a little bit of the context, and then we're going to jump. We're going to start. We're going to read in verse eighteen here. The context: Jesus is walking on the road with his disciples uh, towards the, the uh, Caesarea Philippi, kind of in the northern part of uh, of uh, Israel. They're walking there, and Jesus asks them a very pointed question. It's one of the most important questions. And you guys are probably familiar with this passage. He says, "Who do, who do men say that I am?" Who do men say that? Who do, who do men say I, the Son of Man, am? And so they say, well, you know, they give him the 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 well, thirty percent of the population uh, thinks that you're John the Baptist, and and sixty six percent of the population believe that you are, you know, uh, uh, the prophet, and and two uh, percent think you're, the, you know, whatever. They give him the uh, the Gallup poll uh, popularity report for his status, right? They say, well, some people think you're Elijah, some people think you're a prophet, some people think you're this, and they're just basically telling him what people think he is. Now, how do they know that? Because they're probably talking to people. Hey, you know, who's that Jesus? Why do you follow that guy? Is he the prophet? Is he, did he? They're asking him, they're talking with him, so they, they know, they're in touch with the people, right? They're in touch with it. And then Jesus turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And what is he doing? Is, isn't he trying to find out what's going on in their heart? He's trying to find out, all this time you've been spending with me, do you know who I am? All this time we've been together, have you got it figured out yet? Has it sunk in? A lot of things that they missed. But Peter, as you guys remember, he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Right? Peter testifies You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the one that Father said he would send to save and to deliver. You're the king 
of God's kingdom, who's going to establish and make everything right, establish God's kingdom, make everything right. You're that one. You're the son of God. And Jesus looks at Peter in verse 17 and says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. He says, you didn't figure this out on your own. You didn't get this from doing research in the Gallup polls. You didn't figure this out because you read it in a book. He says, you've been with me, and you've heard my teaching, and God has revealed to you that I'm the Christ. Peter got something. He was the first one to get it, and he was the first one to be bold enough to say it. You are the Christ. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, you didn't figure that out, Peter. You're blessed because God showed you that. My Father showed you that. And then Jesus begins to teach them about what he's going to do in the future. And he says in verse 18, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so Jesus, he says to Peter, uh, Simon, his, 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 uh, his, his name given by his, his parents, his given name is Simon. He says, Simon, you're blessed because God has revealed this to you. And now I'm calling you Peter. And the word Peter, the name Peter, means stone. He's, saying, he's changing Simon's name to be Peter because he's changing his identity and his destiny as he's brought him into the kingdom. He says, you're Peter. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there's, there's a lot of debate throughout church history about what's this rock. Is the rock Peter? Is the rock the revelation that Peter received about Jesus? Is Jesus the rock? I think, I'm thinking it uh, could be all of them at the same time. It's really not actually that big a deal, something that we need, don't even need to worry about. Because even if Peter is the rock, he was the first one to get, catch the revelation. And he was the chief among the twelve. He wasn't the only apostle. And he surely wasn't the first pope at Rome. But some people believe that. But this verse does not prove any of those things. But Pete, Jesus is saying, you're Peter. And on this rock, which I believe he's referring, when he says this rock, I believe he's referring to the revelation that Peter caught. He's He's speaking to, because actually uh, Peter is one word, stone, and the word rock is a different word. And so I think he's, is, is some, some people say, well, it's a play on Peter's name, but I think what he's doing is he's saying, you're Peter, you've got this. And on this rock, I'll build my church. Peter was the first one, but he sure wasn't the last, was he? He is not the first, he, he's not the last one to catch this revelation of who Christ is. And Jesus is saying that, that on this rock, this person, Peter, as well as those who would go after him, other, other Christians, disciples, and leaders throughout church history who have caught who Christ is and have surrendered their life to him on that rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. See, the debate always revolves around the rock. What's the rock? And it's really not the emphasis of the passage. whether it's Peter or the Revelation, the rock is the human side of the equation. Jesus is saying that 
I'm going to take people who know who I am, and on that rock, I'm going to build my church. The emphasis of this passage is on the fact that Jesus will build his church. Do you see that? He says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Do you see the emphasis? Is it Peter's church? Nope. Is it the four-square denomination or the Lutherans or the Catholics or whatever? Is it, is it? See, the problem, I have a real problem with people who talk about the church as a human institution. I have a problem, even pastors do this. They talk about their programs and their strategies and their mission. Denominations will talk about our denomination and what we're doing. Now, some of that's not necessarily bad. Because we are stewards of his house. He is building his church on the rock. We are a part of the equation. We are partnering as co-laborers with Jesus. Amen? He said he's the vine. We're the branch. Well, you can't do anything without the vine. The vine is the source of life. But can the vine produce fruit, grapes, without a branch? Nope. Peter's important. You're important. He's invited us into the kingdom to partner with him. But do you see the emphasis? In fact, if you have a Bible, I'd recommend that you circle I and my. I will build my church. Do you see the emphasis? Peter's not going to build the church. The 12 apostles didn't build the church. The revivalists throughout church history, though amazing that they are, they didn't build the church. You and I, we're not building the church. We might be the rock, but we're not building the church. And it's also, it's not our church. We are the church. We're His. I will build my church. I, Jesus says, I will build my church. It's His church, amen? The church, the Bible says in Acts 20, he bought with his own blood. Revelation 1, that he loved us and gave himself for us. Ephesians chapter 5, that he loved us and gave himself for the church. Did he hire somebody to die? Did he make Gabriel the angel do it? No. He laid down his own life. He shed his own blood. Why? Because we belong to him. Amen? Because we were created by him and for him. We were made to be his daily delight. We are his inheritance. We are the ones that he died for. And because he bought us with his blood, we belong to him. Amen? It's his church. His church. See, I'm a pastor. I'm an under-shepherd. I'm a steward of his house. I'm a pastor of his sheep. But he's the pastor, amen? The word shepherd and pastor, same word. He's the good pastor who lays down his life for the sheep, John 10. He is the high priest, Hebrews says, and the apostle of his church. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Amen? See, Jesus isn't dead. The church is not a human institution. The success of the church, the growth of the church, the salvation of people's lives, the transformation of people's lives, your growth, your healing, your deliverance, your sanctification to become more like Christ is not hanging on me or any human being. Jesus bought you with His blood. Jesus loves you and Jesus is leading us. Jesus is alive and He is leading His church. 2,000 years ago, He died and rose again and He has not stopped leading His church. And He has not gotten distracted. He's not gotten discouraged. He's not lost sight of the vision. He hasn't forgotten who we are. He hasn't become passive or given up. He's resolute. He's set. He's determined. Jesus knows exactly what the mission and the vision of His church is. He knows exactly what the purpose of His church is. He knows exactly what He wants to see happen. And He is leading, set, resolved, committed, faithful, and patient. Amen? Jesus is alive and He's leading His church. He's building on the rock, but He's the one doing the building. He's the one pastoring. He's the one discipling. Ephesians 5 says that He washes us, His bride, with the water of His Word. It says that He nourishes and cherishes us. How does He do that? Feeding us with the Word. I'm a steward of His house. I'm a shepherd of His sheep. But all that means is that I am to be faithful to Him. Then he says here, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Won't win. Again, there's a lot of debate about this phrase, the gates of Hades shall not prevail. It's kind of simple. It means we win. Nothing and no one can stop Jesus from building his church, he will win. Now the word gate of Hades, Hades is the, was the place of the dead, or it is the place of the dead. Not for us, we, go, we get to go to be with the Lord. But before Jesus came, go to Hades. And those people who don't know Jesus, they'll go to Hades uh, before being thrown into Gehenna, the lake of fire, which is not a good thing. Jesus says the gates of Hades shall not prevail. It's basically a way of saying death won't win. Death's not going to win. Now, now how, how did that work? How does that work? Death's not going to win. Well, first of all, he rose. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the resurrected one. Death could not hold him down. Amen? He rose again. He is alive. And he is leading his church. But not only that, generation after generation after generation... People die until he returns and he deals with death completely and we, get, we reign with Jesus with resurrected bodies. That'll be a good day. Until that day, we die. So Peter, he's in heaven, yeah? But Jesus is still leading his church. Death can't stop him because he's alive. That's what he's talking about. Now, I think he also, some people suggest that the gates of Hades is also referring to worldly cultural influences. I think that's true. I think the gates of Hades is talking about that demonic authority that the enemy has over death and 
deception and things like that. And so, think about the fact of what goes on in our world today. Injustice, war, buildings that fall down on people because people just wanted profit. In Bangladesh, you guys know about that. Or people who are crazy and think, I'll change the world by blowing children up. It's just insane. That's demonic. Those things happen. It's not good. It's not the will of the Lord. But what is Jesus saying? Not stop me from leading my church, from building my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail. The church undergoes such persecution, doesn't it? Around the world, millions of Christians persecuted for their faith. In many parts of the world, especially in America, many Christians swayed by temptation like sexual sin to live in complacency. Just the force of our worldly culture keeping Jesus' church from really burning, shining. Persecution. Just like a freight train trying to take God's people out. And what, yet what happens? In 2,000 years, has any persecution or has any sin or has any death of a human leader, has it stopped Jesus from building his church? Not at all. Jesus is alive. He is leading his church. Remember in China, some of you know this and some of you don't. In China, for example early part of the century, 1900s, I mean. The communist, country, communists uh, came in, took over China, killed or kicked out all the missionaries, killed countless Christians. As a communist nation, there is no God, and squished the church. Us in the Western world, no more church in China, so we thought. Things have somewhat changed because Jesus builds his church. Now they have a state-run church uh, that you can, you can be a part of called the Three Self Church. And even now, because of the countless millions of believers who are coming to Jesus, through underground house churches, they're beginning to allow them to register some pla- in some places. The Chinese government said no God, no Christianity, squished the church, and guess what happened? It exploded. Underground, not literally underground. They don't even like to say that anymore. They don't like to use that phrase underground. But hidden from the world, if you will, people started getting saved in homes and it started multiplying like crazy. The fastest, or I should say the greatest revival, the fastest and largest movement of people coming to Jesus, being saved, ever in church history is happening right now in China. For decades, 
Millions of Chinese people have been coming to Jesus. Millions in homes. No church buildings. Under government persecution. So much that, huh, that's funny. The government just keeps changing their stance because they don't know how to deal with these Christians. Isn't that funny? They have thrown them in prison. They have beaten them to a pulp. They have tortured them. They have taken their leaders and thrown them in prison. And they can't stop it. So now they have to try to change it a little bit. You know, South Korea, you know, South Korea is about a third Christian right now. Third of the population is Christian, South Korea. In the early, uh, in the late 1800s, virtually none. They kill their missionaries. Hermit nation, to themselves nation, just kill the missionaries. About 1906, 1907, and I believe, I'm probably going to butcher this name, Penang, uh, Korea, which is in North Korea, by the way. It's the capital of North Korea. And this breaks my heart, but also I, I know this is something that the Lord is doing. In North Korea, which is under a communist regime right now, we're crazy and talk trash. Uh, <laughs> they, um, there was a revival. 1906, 1907. Revival. Bunch of... Koreans began to get swept into the kingdom. Not a ton. Then the Japanese came in and began to oppress the Koreans. And they went through many decades of oppression under the Japanese. And it was very, very bad uh, kind of oppression. But in the midst of that, though it squished some of what God was doing there, there will be successive revivals in each generation. The Koreans are fiery. They're very militant in the way they pray. Very passionate, fervent. And so they would see these revivals where generation after generation would come, just become on fire for the Lord, seek the Lord, even under this oppression. After the Korean War, when the North Korean and the South Korean uh, split, the church exploded. The largest churches in the world are in Korea, South Korea. Churches. There's a church in South Korea, pastored by uh, David Cho, that is a half a million people. One church. The largest churches are in South Korea. Just this year alone, I believe Foursquare. Korean in Korea churches, Korean churches in Foursquare sent out like 17 missionaries, or I'm sorry, missionaries to 17 nations. I think that was just Foursquare. We definitely aren't the only denomination. The Chinese are so passionate for the gospel, they will give their life for the gospel. Many have. And they have a passion, they call it back to Jerusalem. They literally want to pave the way to Jerusalem with their blood. They say, we know how to suffer. We know how to die for Christ. What, what they mean by uh, go back to Jerusalem is from China to Jerusalem is the Silk Road, the old Silk Road. They want to go through the Muslim nations, plant churches, a lot of times through uh, uh, 
restaurants, Chinese restaurants, plant churches, preach the gospel. God is sending the Chinese people all over the world to plant churches. They believe that when the gospel goes back to Jerusalem, meaning when there's revival in Israel, and this is true, Jesus will return. It's true. When all the nations come to the Lord and Israel returns to the Lord, then the end. Very passionate. Wholly given to Jesus. Mozambique. Socialism. Failed. Mozambique. Poorest of the poor nation. Children orphaned from years of revolution, years of parents being killed. Children living in dumps because there's no parents, no jobs. Socialism failed. The government failed. Revolutions that decimated the nation. There's a ministry, I'm sure they're not the only one, there's a ministry led by Heidi and Roland Baker called Iris Ministries. They went to be missionaries in that nation. The government didn't know what to do with the orphans, so they took some. Tens of thousands of churches all throughout Mozambique, Central and Northern Africa. Muslims are coming to Jesus all over the place. Pastors, a part of, part of their church planting movement, they take the orphans in. If you're a pastor in their movement, ten orphans at least. They're fathering a fatherless generation. They have had flood after flood. I know of at least two massive floods that have just wiped out crops, wiped out food, isolated people. They fly in their plane. You know, that's really bad, right? Because that ministry owns a plane. So they must be a prosperity gospel. Just messing. Nowadays, that's how people talk. But uh, they own a plane. The pastor, the pastor, the man, the husband, I mean, flies a plane so he can get to places no one could get. They go show the Jesus film. They heal the blind and the deaf and the lame. And people are coming to Jesus like crazy. Sometimes they get to a place that's isolated and there's already one of their churches there. They didn't even know. Did the floods stop the gospel? It hasn't. Did the, did the persecution stop the gospel? Heidi Baker, she's been, her life's been threatened so many times. People have tried to kill her more than once. She's had major sicknesses because being in, in that environment. Has that stopped the gospel in Mozambique? Has that stopped the revival? Did the revolution stop the gospel from Jesus building church? No. Out of that brokenness, out of that poverty, out of that pain, out of the persecution in China, out of the oppression from the Japanese in Korea, out of all that, who is leading his church? Who is building his church? Jesus. Amen? Can anything stop him? No. Can the immorality stop Jesus? Can the government stop Jesus in America? What if they change the laws, the amendments? Can they stop him? Can they stop him? Absolutely not. Because he's alive and he's building his church. Christians become cold, fruitless at times. Christians die from persecution. It's, it's not good. It's not like the Lord wants. It's not good. We're not supposed to pray for persecution, by the way. 
But in the midst of those things, those who have a revelation of who Christ is rise up in who they are in Christ to give their lives like Heidi and Roland Baker, wholly given, a life poured out, sacrificed for Him and for His kingdom. And on that rock, He builds His church. Amen? I could tell you more stories, more nations. But let me tell you, there's revival. We're living in the greatest revival ever right now around the world. Because Jesus is a good leader. Because He knows what He's doing. He knows how to disciple. Amen? Towards me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Before I read this, every leader, every good leader, knows where he's leading. If you were to study businesses, study CEOs, study effective businesses, every effective organization, every effective business, they know their mission and their vision. They have a clear sense of why they're there and where they're going. It's one of the keys to a good, effective leader. In fact, um, when a business loses sight of who they are, they fail. You ever notice what happened to J.C. Penney recently? J.C. Penney, they brought in a new CEO. They're trying to salvage some things, and the CEO changed everything. Changed the stores, changed the brands, tried to reach the young people, and alienated the uh, 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 committed J.C. Penney's customers. Didn't attract the others. They totally lost sight of, of who they are. And didn't work. Literally, stocks plummeting. They're totally in a free fall. They fired him after 17 months, hired back the other guy. There's advertisements on the, on the TV. We're so sorry, we're wrong, come back. They lost it. Do you remember, um, some of you remember this, do you remember a little over 17 years ago, Apple Computers, Inc., was failing. They, in fact, they fired Steve Jobs, he was the co-founder of the company, most of you know this. They fired him because he lost sight of the vision. They fired him. I'm summarizing real quick, but they fired him. He went on to actually start his own thing, kind of re-engineered himself, refocused himself, started his own thing, Pixar, and then this thing called Next Computers, and, and they hired him back, made him CEO. And he brought that company back to who they are. He simplified things. And until his death, Apple was skyrocketing. It's legendary. He turned that company around, and they became the top tech company. See, when a leader, a CEO, knows what we're about, knows where we're going bring success. But when an organization or a CEO loses focus, fails. The way that organizations describe this is the mission is what we do. The mission is the purpose. What we're all about, and it's usually more focused on the present. The vision of an organization is focused on the future. It comes from the word vision, what you see, right? 
Vision is seeing something that not, is, not, is not right now. It's a picture of the preferred future. It's what that organization sees will be the result or the end goal of their organization. Oftentimes, a mission and a vision are actually kind of intertwined, and so you'll kind of get that statement together. You'll get like the mission and the vision statement of an organization. In fact, here, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example here real quick. This is exciting stuff, just joking. Apple is committed to bringing the best personal computing experience to students, educators, creative professionals, and consumers around the world through its innovative hardware, software, and internet offerings. That's the mission vision of, of Apple. Facebook. Facebook's mission is to give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally acceptable, ac- accessible and useful. Their mission were to do this, this is what we see the end goal being, the vision, the fruit. Oftentimes then an organization will throw in their values, and then oftentimes with that a strategy. The strategy is the how, the how we're going to do, fulfill the goals, how we're going to do the mission and the vision, right? It's the how-to. And then from there, an organization will develop objectives or policies and so those things can be, those can be very diverse, and those can, I mean, an organization has to do lots of things. You've got people from janitors to CEOs to, to receptionists in a big organization, right? And yet, everybody in, a, in, a, in an effective organization like Apple, they know what they're about. One thing, right? One purpose, one focus, and a good leader leads them in that way. Matthew 28. Jesus says in verse 18, after he rose from the grave, as he is alive, says this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. I'm alive. Revelation 1 says, he's got the keys of death and Hades in his hand. He rose up and said, clink, 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 I won. He is the king of of his kingdom, the Father's kingdom. He's the king that the Father placed. That's what it means to be Messiah. He's the leader, the pastor of his church. And he says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. The Bible says everything is under his feet. He's sitting at the Father's right hand, which is simply the place of highest power, privilege, and authority. He's got it all from the Father. He's totally submitted to the Father's will. He executes the Father's will. He leads with the authority, all authority that he's been given. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I'm alive. I'm building my church. Verse 19. Go, therefore, make disciples, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, or behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. You know, Jesus is a great strategic leader. He was a CEO. He would rock. Messing. In one sentence, he told us exactly what the mission and the vision of his church is. His church his mission, his vision. So simple. Before any of these companies ever figured it out, what they 
that they should do that. Because he's a great leader. He's brilliant. And his strategy for the kingdom is absolutely brilliant. And in 2,000 years, he has not lost sight of this mission. He has not changed his vision. He's not gotten discouraged. The Bible says he will not grow weary until he sees justice on the ends of the earth. Never given up. He's not changed. So what's his mission and vision? Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples of all the nations. What's the mission? Make disciples. That's what we do. What does this family business make? Do we make widgets? Do we make computers? Are we like Facebook or Google? Nope. We make one thing. It's that simple. There is one reason, one thing that we as the church are about. To make disciples. That's the mission. That's it. It's not any more complicated than that. And what's the vision? What's the scope? What's the picture? Not of the preferred future, but let me tell you, the promised future. It's not what Jesus wishes will happen. It's what he said will happen. He is not coming back till every, from people, until people from every tribe and language and people and nation know him. All nations. That's the vision. Until all nations. That's the scope of our mission. That's what Jesus is living for. That's what he is doing. That is how he is leading. That is his mission and his vision. The other verses describe his strategy, if you will. Baptizing them. Literally, by baptizing them. You could insert the word by there because of the way the Greek is phrased. By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? You lead them into a relationship where I am Lord and they give their life to me as Lord. Not as buddy. And then teach them nice little stories and information that makes them feel good about themselves, right? No. Teach them to what? Obey. To obey all that I've commanded you. He says that's how you get this thing done. You go make disciples by doing those two things. That's the strategy. In essence, this is what we're called to do. Now think about it. Let me just... We're going to get into this in more detail. But if Jesus is alive and he's building his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail, if this is what the king of God's kingdom is doing, how is he building his church? By making disciples. Through us. That's how he's building his church. If this is what Jesus is doing on the earth, And what else are we living for? Listen, if you are not living to make disciples, if you have not given your life to Jesus and to the work of his kingdom, to this, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your time. This is it. If the church loses sight of this, we're not connected to him. 
Because this is what he's doing. See, it's not about you and me, is it? A lot of Christians, what's my calling? It's not about you. It's about him. Now, hey, you got gifts and talents and purposes. and Like I said, in, in any organization, there's going to be lots of different roles to fill. You have a part to play. Praise God. That's a relevant message, but not what God wants to say to us today. Today, he wants you to understand it's not about you. It's not about your calling. It's not about your gifts. You might have none. You really don't. You have gifts. But people, Dave, I don't have any gifts. Well, that's, all, that's cool. You don't have any gifts? That's all right, because it's not about you anyways. I don't know what my life is supposed to be about. I don't know what my calling is. It's not because Jesus didn't make it clear. You don't know what you're called to? That's all right. It's not about you. It's about Him. I just don't feel like I'm a very good, you know, whatever. I don't feel... That's all right. He loves you, first of all. Grace is bounds to you. But it's not about you anyways. But I'm so worried about my life. I'm so worried about my finances. You realize that worry is evidence that it's about you and not about Him. Worry is evidence that you're not seeking first the kingdom. Because if you're about His business, what did He say? You honor me, I'll honor you. You seek first the kingdom and all these things shall be added unto you. Is it your money? Is it your time? Is this your life? No, because when he bought you with his blood, you became his. Amen? And so if my time and my money and my relationships are not wholly given to Jesus to obey all that he has commanded and to go and make disciples to freely receive, freely give, I'm wasting my life. even if I'm a pastor, right? Many of us lose sight. We need to come back to this. This is what the Lord wants to do. He wants to shift us from self to Christ-centeredness. He wants to expose areas in our life that are self. He wants us to see that this is not about us. It's about Him. For his kingdom and his glory. And when we surrender to him and give our lives to Jesus, what happens? He says, we find our life. You know when you'll find your identity? You know when the blessings of God and his power will flow in your life? When you surrender all. But if we're about other things than what the family business, mission and vision is all about, we're wasting our life, we're wasting our money, we're wasting our time. Jesus wants all of us. He wants all of it. We'll get into this more specifically. But today, we need to respond by saying yes to the Lord. Amen? We need to, out loud, commit ourselves to this. 
We need to say, yes, you're the leader. You're the Lord. And you've called us to this. We will do it. See, discipleship that doesn't produce disciple makers has fallen short. If a disciple has not become a disciple maker, then they haven't been fully discipled. Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, one who has been perfectly trained will be just like a master. He reproduces his life in us. We pour that into others. He's calling us, not because we haven't been doing this, or not because, uh, because, you know, I was talking to Tom, it's not, it's not a repentance because we, somehow there's sin or rebellion. If there is, you need to just repent. Rebellion. But that's not what the Lord is saying today. I, I don't sense that the Lord is necessarily correcting us. Well, maybe there is that correction. He's wanting to deal with those things in our hearts that hinder fear, excuses, worry, selfishness. See, when we operate from self, it changes our values, our decisions, the way we spend our time and our money, the things that we do. But when Christ is the center, we operate from those kingdom values. We do the things that the King has told us to do. The Lord is wanting that shift to take place in our church. So let's stand up. Let's respond to the Lord.